Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What we're seeing today in the Indian Ocean is a blurring of the lines between traditional and non-traditional. And this is a phenomenon which is problematic almost everywhere. When you raise maritime domain awareness, you raise a topic that, by its nature, requires cooperation. No nation is capable of uh, achieving satisfactory maritime domain awareness on their own. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Jennifer Parker, an expert associate at the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. So as a formal naval officer, I am pretty excited to be doing today's podcast. If you've been following our social media, media commentary or publications, you may have noticed that the National Security College has a growing cadre of maritime expertise. In addition to our head, Professor Rory Medcalf, and one of Australia's leading thinkers on maritime security issues in the Indian Ocean, Dr. David Brewster, to name a few, we're recently joined by a number of maritime security experts, and I'm lucky enough to have two of them here with me today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Frederick Greer and Justin Burke to set the scene for 2024 by delving into some of the maritime security challenges confronting the Indo-Pacific region and a little bit beyond. But first, to introduce our guests... Dr. Frederick Greer has recently joined NSC as a Senior Research Fellow under a special expert program sponsored by the Government of France, with an extensive background working in both academia and the French government. Justin Burke is a Senior Policy Advisor at the National Security College ANU, a non-resident fellow at the Centre for Maritime Strategy and Security, Institute for Security Policy at Keele University, and Justin was a 2022 Michael and Deborah Thorley Scholar in the International Security at CSIS and Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. Frederick, Justin, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And look, I think when we look back on 2023, many of the maritime challenges that occurred really made the mainstream public discourse, which is the first time in a while for Australia. With increased aggression in the region from the PLA, notably resulting in injury to HMS Toowoomba's sailors in November 2023, and near misses between coalition ships and aircraft in the region. We've seen the increasing use of uncrewed surface vessels in the Black Sea by Ukraine, causing many analysts to ask whether naval warfare is evolving. And right now, we're still seeing attacks on merchant shipping and seafarers in the Red Sea, debates about Royal Australian Navy capability in the Defence Strategic Review, delays with outcomes of the Surface Combatant Fleet Review in Australia, and the announcement of the AUKUS Optimal Pathway to support Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines, which occurred in March 2023. 
So that's to name a few, and there's a lot to cover in the maritime. We won't cover that all today, um, but I'm pleased to focus on some of the issues that I know both of you are researching deeply at the moment, looking both at maritime security in the Indian Ocean and Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered and conventionally armed submarines. So, Frederick, I'm going to start with you and talk a little bit about the Indian Ocean. There's always this discussion when we talk about the Indo-Pacific in terms of how Australia views the Indo-Pacific, which generally cuts off the Western Indian Ocean, and how other countries view it. And it's really come to the fore in the last couple of weeks with the attacks on Red Sea shipping, with the arguments about how close is that really to the Indo-Pacific. So thinking about the Indian Ocean, can you talk about some of the current security dynamics in the Indian Ocean? First of all, I mean, seen from a French perspective, of course, the perspective is slightly different because we tend to see the Indo-Pacific as in encompassing the entire Indian Ocean, which is a difference with Australia. But in that context, of course, the Indian Ocean takes as a particular relevance for us. Uh, in many ways, the situation in the, in the Indian Ocean is not that different from the one in the, uh, the Pacific Ocean. There is the mixed challenges on security from traditional and non-traditional security threats. On the first one, you named the classical India-Pakistan, US-Iran in the, the Strait of Hormuz, and so on and so forth. And of course, the emergence of China as a major actor in the region. On the uh, non-traditional uh, threats, you've got a whole set of issues which are very different by nature because all the non-traditional says is about the non-state actor character of the threat. So you include the UTI problem today in the Red Sea, two things which have a lot to do with climate change. Actually, both have tragic consequences and both tragic consequences which sometimes amount to the same. Why do I say that? Because if you look at the UTI problem, this is essentially an increased problem volatility in the Red Sea, which is rerouting a number of trade uh, shipments uh, from the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, of course, to uh, the southern, uh, uh, southern Indian Ocean, including the Channel of Mozambique, but also the larger uh, Southern Africa and so on. In this, you do have questions regarding who controls the channel, who controls what, and who has access to what. The same question can be asked about uh, climate change. Why? Because a question like climate change asks immediately the question of what is the strategy. The strategy is to move from uh, carbon-linked energy to uh, solar, for example. That requires investment. Investment means indebtedness. Indebtedness means dependence. And at a certain level, dependence is whatever the creditor wants it to be. In other words, the question of control of the Indian Ocean access denial and all those questions come at the very end to this uh, in the same light. This is always related to the arrival of China. So what we're seeing today in the Indian Ocean is a blurring of the lines between traditional and non-traditional. And this is a phenomenon which is problematic almost everywhere. I mean, what could argue is that we also see the same thing in the, uh, the Pacific in many ways. Look at Australia's position when it comes to the relationship with the Pacific island and the need also to maintain high-tech uh, level of its navy through AUKUS and so on. And one doesn't exclude the other. 
And on the, I mean, dismissing the non-traditional threat as being irrelevant because there used to be more or less the space for cooperation as opposed to traditional threat because of their straight-to-straight character, which were um, the, the, the space for sovereignty, for sovereign uh, rights, and so on. This distinction still exists up to a point, but not as is not as absolute as it used to be. Thanks so much, Frederick. Justin, I might just turn to you and see if there's anything you'd like to add about the challenges in the Indian Ocean. I think with Australia's traditional relationships in the Pacific and some of the responsibilities that we have there and the location of our population being mostly on the East Coast, uh, it is natural and understandable that we often look to the Pacific as being our area where we our focus is most required. But I agree with what Frederick says, and I, and I can certainly see a shifting consensus in the security community about the importance of the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, it, 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 isn't an, it isn't a space we can ignore, uh, and those of us uh, that need to understand it more, uh, you know, are doing so. Um, it, it recalls the, uh, the the trip that was facilitated by the Navy for me, and as they do for many scholars uh, aboard HMAS Adelaide as part of Indo-Pacific Endeavour. It was an opportunity to see the Indian Ocean from the deck of an Australian warship, uh, a very singular experience and an eye-opening, uh, you know, life-changing experience in many ways. So for those of us that are not as expert as Dr. Greer on the Indian Ocean, we're trying. <laughs> Look, um, Justin, I, I, I know your point where you talked about we're increasingly, as Australians, looking towards the Indian Ocean. Obviously, uh, France has been looking at the Indian Ocean for a long time. And, and the Defence Strategic Review released in April last year really did talk about that, um, expanding the defence cooperation program into the Indian Ocean. But, you know, as Frederick mentioned before, when Australia talks about the Indian Ocean, we talk about part of it, which is very different to the French view. Frederick, you touched on something before about traditional versus non-traditional maritime security, and, and, and it's relevant to the entire Indo-Pacific. And when I think about traditional and non-traditional in uh, maritime security, I do think a little bit about the late James Goldrick, who um, was a friend of the National Security College, published some significant work under the National Security College, and and personally was my commandant at ADFA when I was a, a young midshipman. Uh, he had too many stories about me. James Goldrick actually said that um, there was no benefit in distinguishing between traditional and non-traditional maritime security because it actually disincentivized non-traditional maritime security in dealing with those important issues. Do you think there is a benefit to articulating a difference or, or from what you were saying before, do you think that they have merged so much that there is no benefit in that classification? No, I mean, there is benefit in distinguishing them. There is benefit also in distinguishing the situations themselves. Uh, in a number of cases, this is, and this is all related to the, the, the situation with China. In a number of cases, we still need to address those issues as if they were a separate categories because we can establish cooperation with a number of littoral states, be it in the Pacific, be it in the Indian Ocean. At the same time, we have to be aware that there is a competition both for uh, the, the, the fight against those uh, non-traditional threats, but also uh, sometimes a use of those non-traditional threats 
in order to promote geostrategic uh, uh, interests. And that's what we have seen in the South China Sea, for example, with issues such as you fishing. That's what we see in a slightly different way, but not that different in a, effectively in the Indian Ocean when we speak of Chinese IU fishing around uh, in the Southwest Indian Ocean and so on and so forth. So, you know, we are in a very different situation now than we are some time ago. And let me just remind you one thing. This all issue started with one thing, a non-traditional threat, piracy. Piracy was supposed to socialize China into our way of thinking about security, establish some commonalities there as responsible stakeholder. We ended up with a China which actually came to the South China Sea, to the uh, Indian Ocean in uh, on the Horn of Africa, and finally established a base in uh, Djibouti at the uh, entry, I mean, in the, in the Bab el Mandal Strait, and is in a position now to... Uh, create trouble for all other ships traveling around. So this is the kind of situation that we are in. A so-called uh, cooperation based on very positive assumption, very optimistic assumption, is leading to a situation which is uh, potentially detrimental to all of us. And let me tell you that Djibouti in France was a wake-up call for the Navy in particular, first and then to other bodies of the French state about the Indo-Pacific and generated a lot of rethinking about the whole thing. Thank you. You mentioned, you talk about uh, some of the challenges in the Indian Ocean. Um, you talk about, obviously, China established a base in Djibouti in 2017, I think, and looking at the Pacific side of the Indo-Pacific, you know, there is a lot of concern from Australia about whether the same could occur in the Pacific um, one of the other challenges that impacts the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean is the issue of the extensive exclusive economic zones that have come under UNCLOS, you know, 200 nautical miles for some small islands, and the capability of those countries to really manage uh, their own security within those zones. Do you think, Frederick, that the Indian Ocean littoral states are equipped to deal with these challenges? Clearly not. And that's where we have a major problem. And this is a problem which is affecting a lot of issue because, you know, we can think, I mean, we all speak of security architecture, be it in the Pacific, be it in the Indian Ocean. In the Indian Ocean, the security architecture is quasi-inexistent. I mean, you've got two pan-Indian Ocean organization, which are the uh, Indian Ocean Rim Association, the IORA, and the Indian uh, Ocean uh, Naval Symposium, uh, the IONS. None of them are anything else so far than talking shops. That's probably where we can start cooperating in order to make them more effective. But what's the issue behind, besides the political differences, besides the fact that somehow the IORA was created in such a way that no one could really turn it into a domination organization, uh, turn it as an instrument for his own hegemony in the, the region. Well, actually, there is a lack of capacity, a lack of maritime culture, a lack of just everything which would allow for a proper organization, an efficient one. And there is no compensation either. In the Pacific, there is not only relatively efficient organization of uh, 
Australia, New Zealand, France. Uh, but there is also the complementarity of the US with its ship driver uh, program and so on and so forth. This doesn't exist or to a much more limited way in the Indian Ocean. Now, the problem that so much more limited organizations as the Indian Ocean Commission, who does a reasonably good job in, in, on issues such as IU fishing and so on, which help control the thing, is that it's a, essentially uh, fueled by France, and B, there is a point to which mutualization of capacity with a larger IORA, which politically would make sense because all the IOC member states are also part of the IORA, becomes at, at some point mutualization would become dilution and therefore would not make any sense anymore. So we are there, lack of capacity, lack of many things, political differences. But this is an obstacle that we'll have to face because we have the almost entire Eastern African coast, which is a big vacuum for whoever wants to take it. And guess who? No, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of my time operating the Western Indian Ocean last year where uh, I worked with a Djibouti Code of Conduct and actually the biggest concern of the majority of the uh, states on the eastern seaboard of Africa was IU fishing and the majority of that was was fishing vessels flagged to China. Um, so, so absolutely. Look, um, talking about this capacity issue and the security architecture, I know, Justin, uh, you're a big fan of uh, maritime capability and technology, and, and I know you're raring to talk about submarines, which we will get to, much to my disgust as an anti-submarine warfare officer. But do you think that part of the way to address some of these capacity issues, whether that be in the Indian Ocean or in the Pacific, is about helping those countries to use modern technology to achieve that maritime domain awareness? Well, I think when you raise maritime domain awareness, you raise a topic that by its nature requires cooperation. The Indian Ocean and the literal states, um, no nation is capable of uh, achieving satisfactory maritime domain awareness on their own. So it is going to have to be a cooperative effort. I know there's, uh, there's uh, efforts underway under the Quad, which are welcome. Uh, there are question marks over... Um, some of the historical efforts at fusion centres, uh, it's hard to find examples that are really compelling, that they work and that sharing is, is possible. Um, but as Frederick says, there are, there are states that lack all sorts of capabilities, even awareness. Many states very focused on their internal development and what happens at sea uh, is kind of they're blind to, blind to the extent that perhaps they're being affected or, or ripped off or, or illegally fished. So, you know, to some extent, developing awareness presents them with problems they didn't know they had. Um, but look, it's the work of generations. We're going to, it's, it's a really significant task. And yet I must say, uh, at all of the fora at which we, we attend uh, and we meet uh, young scholars uh, and experts and officials from these Indian Ocean nations, and I'm thinking of the developing ones and the smaller ones, there's an enormous hunger to connect and to engage and to better understand each other and to better understand how Australia can help. So, Frederick, we've touched on this a few times and it's something that, um, you know, certainly when I give any uh, lectures or talks on maritime security and I put up the chart, uh, chart, not a map, by the way, uh, of the India, of the Indo-Pacific, I highlight this difference between how Australia conceptualises the Indo-Pacific to many other countries, whether that be India or France. And you mentioned it before. I wonder if you could delve a little bit more into the differences in that conceptualisation. 
Well, the difference in conceptualization itself are not great because, in fact, we all see the uh, Indo-Pacific concept as three things. First of all, this is a way to manage, and I insist on this, of manage the rise of China. It doesn't mean that you want to contain it. It means that you want to constrain it so that it does act as much as possible as uh, according to internationally accepted norms of behavior, which is one thing. The second thing is we all want to redefine it according to our interest in order to not be uh, involved in conflict that we do not want in the uh, to happen in the region, namely the Sino-U.S. Uh, rivalry. And if you look from that perspective, what Macron said and what Penny Wong said a few months ago at the National Press Club, you see very little difference in substance, actually. And third, we want to avoid the consequences as much as possible of being potentially drained into this conflict. So that's what we do. I mean, and the geographical definition of it hardly matters because we can think of it, of it in complementarity as well. I mean, obviously, India, uh, Australia, sorry, in the Indian Ocean is interested in northeast of the Indian Ocean. You've got base in Christmas and cocoa, fine. You look at the Straits, and rightly so. We understand that. We are probably weaker in terms of ADM in that part of the Indian Ocean. We are stronger in the uh, both in the... Um, the, the northwest of the Indian Ocean as well as the southwest of the Indian Ocean. That's where Fusion Center comes in NDE and so on and so forth. And that's what we mean to develop. Now, there are also work that we can do all together in order to address a similar concept in different situations in IORA, not necessarily because IORA will do it, but because it will develop within that framework, which has the immense merit of existing, whereas the creation of new organization, new framework requires time, energy, resources that we don't necessarily have to spare, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there is not that much different. There is just culture. I mean, you definitely look much more at the U.S. as the source of all good. We tend to be slightly... Uh, more skeptical about a number of things. We also agree with them on 90% of what we do. We also consider that there are 10% that is matters to us that is slightly different. I mean, this is where we stand. This is more about this than it is about, you know, a common uh, problems that we're trying to address because in this, it's very difficult to see both in practical terms and uh, in political terms where the different lies. Mm. And, uh, and and talking of now uh, the relationship between Australia and the US, and of course, when we're talking AUKUS, we can't forget our, our UK partners. Uh, I want to switch tack a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about uh, the submarine optimal pathway announced in 2023. So not only was that a mar announced in March 2023, but there have been a number of significant developments, whether that be Australians conducting training in the US uh, or the US National Defence Act coming through. Um, so I guess, Justin, given that you, a lot of your work focuses on Australia's submarine capability, uh, and having joined NSC after students in CSIS Washington and Lowy, 
Um, can you give us a bit of a report card on how you think uh, AUKUS is tracking? And when I'm talking AUKUS, I am talking AUKUS Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Mm, well, starting with Pillar 1, I think 2023 was actually an amazing year. If you put yourself back in the position before March, before we knew what the optimal pathway was, it's easy to forget that people had formed quite strong opinions about whether we should pursue option A, option B, option C. So that would be uh, American submarines, British submarines, uh, forward-based allied submarines. When we got to the announcement, uh, we essentially got an all-of-the-above answer. The elegance of that is that it's comprehensive, it's overlapping. Uh, there are, you know, kind of options for uh, covering our capability gap uh, if, if one, uh, you know, indeed avoiding it, right, at all costs. So an overlap of forward-based allied uh, submarines in Australia under SurfWest, followed by the early 2030s, the provision of three Virginia-class submarines from the United States, followed by in the early 2040s, uh, an Australian-British co-designed nuclear-powered conventionally armed submarine SSN AUKUS. At such time, we expect our Collins-class submarines to be retired uh, around 2040 with their life of type extension. And so to me, that was an effort to say all bases are covered, all options are being pursued. Uh, you know, the difficulty is obviously in the expense of that. Uh, you can do things right, you can do them fast, or you can do them cheap. You can't do all three. And this uh, this is an expensive deal, but uh, but I think that was an emphatic uh, answer to the critical pathway. And, you know, but not to minimise the NDAA uh, that passed into law in the United States at the end of the year. Obviously, significant anxiety during the course of the year, whether the Americans would come through, would authorise this transfer of Virginia-class boats to Australia. And the critics, uh, particularly within the Republican Party, in the Republicans in the Senate, and more subsequently in, let's say, uh, future executive branch hopefuls uh, have become apparent and they do focus on the reality of the opportunity cost. If the United States does want to help its ally, as they've said, there is a cost to their capability uh, in, the, in the short and medium term. They've got significant problems in building enough boats. Uh, I'd love to see them focus perhaps on that as the solution to everyone's problem. But nonetheless, Australia is kind of in the crosshairs for taking submarines out of the US order of battle at a particularly risky time uh, in the next uh, 10 years or so. And that's an issue. But we overcame it. The NDAA uh, you know, has a provision where a future US president has to authorise this transfer and say, that it doesn't degrade America's undersea capabilities. So we've bought some time to try and square that circle. So It was an interesting debate to follow, I think, last year. You know, there was a lot of remarking in Australia that the delays in the approvals going through Congress uh, represented uh, a partisan view of AUKUS. But actually, when you delved into it, what it really represented is a number of the US Congress who actually thought that AUKUS was a good thing, but the US needed to invest more in its submarine industrial base. 
which, you know, when you think about the fact that I think the figures quoted last year was they needed to produce two submarines a year, they're averaging 1.2, and to support AUKUS they needed to produce 2.5. So it is positive, I guess, to see, uh, obviously we're in a year of a US election where anything could happen, um, but that bipartisan support uh, in the US and, in fact, in Australia for, for AUKUS more broadly. But let's say there are some critics of AUKUS. Um, you mentioned the, the the cost, and you know I I've often remarked in the last twelve months that I think it was probably a mistake to release a figure of around three hundred and sixty eight billion dollars, and I see it not very much quoted anymore by defence or the government. Uh, and to be honest, I struggle to to understand uh, that figure was probably made up, uh, to be honest, how you project that kind of cost analysis out until the 2040s with so much risk. And I think there were some quotes around that 50% are contingency in that figure. So $128 billion was kind of fudge factor. So there's one of the criticisms. But what are some of the other criticisms or challenges uh, for AUKUS moving forward? And do you think there's any validity to that? Well, I'll start with my least favourite ones. Uh, when I hear people say... Uh, Australia is starting an arms race by pursuing nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, I'm annoyed. For the most part, people are confusing nuclear propulsion with nuclear weapons, firstly. And secondly, if you believe that there's an arms race going on and that Australia has somehow jumped the gun, you're precisely wrong. Anyone paying any attention to the facts knows that China has built from a starting uh, standstill uh, the world's biggest navy uh, in the, across the last 20 or 25 years. So really it's a criticism that that kind of doesn't marry up with the facts and that one annoys me. Um, you know, equally I think there's a, there's a reality that AUKUS, for all of the achievements I point out last year, isn't moving uh, at the pace of the news cycle uh, and there's a lot of ex- experts and commentators who grow frustrated periodically uh, at the at what they perceive to be the lack of progress. Of course, we would like it all to happen immediately. Such things are not possible, and we're going to have to be patient. Uh, so, you know, the the it's all happening too slow. It's all coming off the rails. Uh, you know, mentality that periodically pops up uh, amongst amongst commentators really annoys me. Look, there are lots of others. I think the most common is perhaps uh, those that are using nuclear-powered submarines as a proxy for their dislike of the alliance. So uh, there are those that are arguing, in effect, that we should not pursue the most capable form of submarine because it would be useful in a conflict. And if it's useful in a conflict, we may be asked, we may be urged to participate alongside our US allies in a conflict. And therefore, we should have no capabilities. Without capabilities, we can't be asked. No one could conceive of us as a threat. Uh, and that's the answer. And I really think that is that doesn't persuade me at all, um, you know, it, not least of which because if you're wrong about that, you have no capabilities. So... I definitely think uh, having having greater capabilities is better than not. Uh, and I think if people want to argue that we shouldn't have an alliance with the United States, they should come out and argue that uh, instead of uh, arguing that it's about submarines because I think they, they're essentially arguing for uh, less capable submarines and, and – uh, and it's in it's in aid of something else. And I note most of the people making that argument are not, in fact, submariners. 
I mean, this is one of the ongoing problems, which is submariners are a very secretive uh, cast. We want them to be. We don't want them to be talking about what they get up to. That is the value of it. They are stealthy capabilities and they are uh, on secret operations. And that's exactly as it should be. But it means that the vacuum gets filled by a lot of people who don't understand it and haven't, uh, haven't made the attempt. We'll be right back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a volatile world, Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions. Licensed by an inclusive conversation, the ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So, so Justin, you know, we've talked about some of these critiques uh, of AUKUS and, and one of the things that I'm kind of seized by, um, having spent a bit of time in the US uh, working with think tanks last year, is the difference in the defence and national security debate in Australia compared to other countries. And I think it really manifests in the maritime understanding. Um, we don't see a lot from our Department of Defence commenting on things. Um, clearly, and that's under a, a Labor or a Liberal government, clearly that is a, a bipartisan government position on the role of defence. Um, and so we, we really don't have that insight into the debate. Do you think that's impacting how the public is viewing AUKUS and investment in capability? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, it's interesting to reflect on on what the average person knows about nuclear-powered submarines and AUKUS. Um, and I, I note the Australia Day LAM ad, uh, which features some Gen Z characters, uh, you know, accusing baby boomers of wasting $368 billion on nuclear-powered submarines. And they kind of quietly admit to each other, yeah, that was an impulse buy. Um, that's kind of uh, one anchor that's possibly that's in people's mind. There's a generational issue. There's the expense of it. I think for a lot of people too, they're very anchored in this era of the Collins class dud subs, so-called, uh, when we had uh, very public uh, difficulties in uh, getting the boats to sea, getting them crewed and, and operational. Uh, so they're the kind of starting points I think that people have. I would love uh, for there to be a real dialogue with the Australian people about the value of submarines. I believe in it. I really do. Uh, I think that when we talk about the jobs that will be created, it's really minimising uh, what this is about. These people are heroes 
Australian men and women who risk their lives, go without, disconnected from their homes and families for weeks and months at a time in cramped, difficult situations because they believe in our security, right? And we're going to be asking more and more people uh, to be involved in this enterprise. Uh, and I would love to hear this, this, you know, the real passion for what, you know, what is an extraordinary story uh, being told to the Australian people. It is absent. There are reasons why there are those of us that that have argued against it and try uh, to fill that gap. And I'll be pursuing a piece of work this year, looking at this issue of social license, how we build with the Australian people this ongoing support and permission for this large, expensive uh, enterprise. But I would say that, uh, you know, in absent that, we've kind of got this uh, pure experiment. There hasn't been that dialogue and there has been sufficient support from the Australian people for AUKUS. I suspect there's some people who think, well, you know, that's good. That's good enough. Uh, However, when support erodes or crumbles uh, or disappears in a surprising fashion, you know, it's then too late to start, uh, you know, if you want to. Uh, drink, you need to dig the well, right? You can't do that at the last minute. So I would like to see alongside nuclear stewardship, alongside the development of a workforce, uh, I would like to see the development of social licence made a greater priority. And I think that comment is really scalable to the impact of maritime domain and maritime capability on Australia in, in general. And I guess this is one of the reasons I'm so excited to be working with the, the National Security College with yourself, Justin and Frederick and Rory and Dave uh, and Captain Sean Andrews, who's just joined. You know, I think that really it is so important right now, and maybe now more than ever, to be talking to the Australian public about how important maritime capability is, how important maritime security is, uh, and, you know, as a plug, how important investment in the Royal Australian Navy is. Now, moving on to the single biggest challenge for Australia in the nuclear submarine space in 2024 and beyond. Um, Frederick, I thought I might just turn to you as a, as a, a person from a country who has operated nuclear-powered submarines for a while. What do you think some of the challenges are in embracing nuclear-powered submarine capability? Well, the challenge is that... Uh Partly what you you just discussed, but the the, ten, the constant tension between the need to have people understand what we do with it, and the need to keep the level of secrecy which is uh, necessary for operation. In 2021, we had the Emerald, you know, uh, which is a SSN patrolling the entire Indo-Pacific. Actually, the big difference with previous years was not in the uh, operation itself, which was Operation Marianne, but in the fact that it was actually advertised that the Navy decided to communicate on it. This operation has been going on since 2001. So this is something which is there. I mean, the public is not really questioning about um, the need for investment of uh, a nuclear submarine or anything, simply because this has been part of the French narrative for decades. I understand that here is a slightly different because there is a strong anti-nuclear uh, movement, no matter what. And I agree with you that there is a strong difference between a, a nuclear-propelled submarine and a, and a carry and, and the submarine carrying nuclear weapons. So this is something which will be. This tension will be. Um, 
increasingly important when we run up into big tensions. I mean, we all think about Taiwan because this is the most obvious case in which that kind of question may eventually be raised and so on. Uh, that's more or less what I see. Again, when we discuss it, I think that the real problem for many of us will not be to have uh, general acceptance, <clears throat> a, an operational problem with uh, what we're going to do with the submarines, how navies know what they can, what they want, what they will be asked to do on the one side, but the fact that this should not be uh, exclusive and that the all the uh, non-traditional threats that I was talking earlier are going to matter much more because this is where things are going right now. Nobody wants a nuclear conflict to start with. Nobody wants to start a naval war in the second. And by the way, remind me when the uh, the, the last naval battle uh, historically occurred. That well, I would argue that something. was two days ago. Well, <laughs> well, we, we can definitely uh, debate that. But anyway. Uh, and so on and so forth. So there is this sort of chess game which is being played everywhere that we're all aware of, that we actually do cooperate on it, post-Tokus and post-end uh, of the, the French contract. We still decided to keep cooperating on a number of issues because we are both aware of that and so on. And this is the beginning, the, the basis for the uh, reset of our relationship anyway. So that's where that kind of tension, that's where we're going to be in the next uh, in the next few months. So, Justin, looking at you then, uh, and given what Frederick has said, what do you see as the biggest challenge for Australia in the nuclear cell burning space in 2024 and beyond? Look, it's it's uh, uh, difficult to kind of uh, quantify, but I think it's the opportunity costs, right? And uh, that's extending something Frederick's alluded to there. Uh, this is demanding a huge amount of mental bandwidth from defence, from Navy, from government, right? And we have all sorts of other uh, important defence goals and objectives and obligations and... I fear that we're unable to do everything. Nuclear is a, uh, a no-mistakes drill, right? So the only equivalent that we could probably compare it to in Australia is uh, aviation safety, right? So that is something that we've done very well in this country. Qantas, uh, for all its faults, is you know the world's safest airline. That is a huge achievement. That's the kind of standard that we're going to have to achieve uh, with this nuclear propulsion program. And indeed, it goes back to Hyman Rickover, the father of the US nuclear navy, some very kind of strict cultural attitudes. Um, but in but it's, it's about, you know, the application of the best and brightest to these challenges. You know, if you take the best and brightest from whatever else they might have done or are doing and put them into this uh, this program, then there is a cost apparent, right? I mean, one of the apparent costs, uh, which I think is already obvious, is AUKUS Pillar 2. Immediately and perpetually in the shadow of Pillar 1, Pillar 2 is the advanced defence capabilities that we're collectively pursuing. They include quantum, hypersonics, AI, and so on and so forth. All the kind of capabilities that we can imagine in many decades in the future will be extremely important, but potentially even more important than uh, than submarines are. Uh, and, you know, while uh, each of them separately doesn't merit the kind of large press conferences with two prime ministers and a president 
for each and every discovery or each and every million dollar investment. Nonetheless, it hasn't achieved, uh, as far as we can tell publicly, anything like the, the progress of Pillar 1. So there's that. And there's 20 other things, right? Um, in fact, Jen, if I might even question you and throw to you, I know you've done significant work last year looking at this surface fleet review, what capabilities we need on the surface. Um, you know, that was very obviously punted from the Defence Strategic Review as something we are still struggling to uh, complete the work and get our head around. Um, you know, what does this year hold in that respect? Will we start to get clarity on that other important priority? Yeah, look, thanks. Uh, thanks, Justin. I think it, it's an interesting one. Uh, you talk about the opportunity cost for AUKUS, and, and certainly one of the opportunity costs is potentially wider investment in the ADF and the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, and I think, you know, as we're recording this on the 16th of January, uh, there's some uh, press out today about more challenges in the Australian Navy's ability to crew its Anzac-class frigates. Uh, and I suspect really a lot of those challenges also relate to the ability to sustain those Anzac-class frigates. And, you know, I think back to the 2019 ANAO audit that came out and said, um, you are, you know, I'm paraphrasing extensively, but you're not going to be able to extend those frigates for nine years. They're getting very old. Um, they were not built for a long life. Um, and so I think there are there are a lot of challenges in that space. And the biggest one is the fiscal challenges. And that goes back to that conversation with the public about why maritime matters, why capability matters. And I think that that's a conversation that was probably missed in 2023, where there was an opportunity on a number of occasions to have that conversation with the public. And so I think it's going to be a hard sell for the government to convince the public that not only do we need to invest in nuclear-powered submarines, that we need to provide more money to our surface combatant fleet. Uh, and realistically, I can't see how you rectify our current situation without providing more funding to the surface combatant fleet. And I think there's a couple of challenges. One, um, you know, I've written and spoken extensively on the fact that I think that we don't have enough ships. Uh, and that's not just because I like ships and, and, and I'm a former ship driver. It's because actually all of the reviews and analysis since the 70s that have been precursors to white papers, have always said that we needed more ships. 16 to 20 was the figure. And that was in an environment where we thought about this construct of 10 years strategic warning time, you know, and that is that we'll have 10 years notice of a major conflict in the region to fix our capability. Well, in 2020, the Defence Strategic Update said 10 years strategic warning time is a fallacy. And in 2023, the Defence Strategic Review confirmed that. And yet we haven't changed the structure of our fleet. And so I think that's a major challenge. The other issue, you know, you talked about timeframes with AUKUS Pillar 1 and the impatience, you know. Arguably, I would say that the Australian submarine agencies should be patting themselves on the back right now that AUKUS Pillar 1 is very much on track. Now, that might change. Um, but when we talk about surface combatant, um, it takes a long time to build a surface combatant, specifically if you insist on building it in Australia, um, which is certainly the, the government's current policy. And so when we're talking about the current crises, you know, both in the Middle East, in Europe, um, arguably in the South China Sea, and our ability to service those with surface combatants, we need to be making decisions now. 
And so I was surprised that the government delayed the decision on the surface combatant fleet review outcomes until 2024. I think it must come soon. Certainly it will need to align with the upcoming national defence strategy. Uh, and I think it would be prudent to release it before the May budget. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to see. Um, I do hope, much to many discuss, that we don't see an increased fleet of corvettes. Uh, as much as a tiered capability in the RAN is important, I think when you're talking about a paucity of assets, your average corvette is too small to service the needs of the Australian Navy. Um, so what I do hope we see is an expanded surface combatant fleet, uh, frigates and destroyers with increased lethality, as the DSR talks about. What do I think we'll see? It's difficult to say. Okay, thanks for that, Jen. Well, Frederick and Justin, uh, thank you so much for your time on the National Security Podcast today. It's been fantastic to delve into some of those maritime security challenges. Obviously, there is a lot we haven't had time to discuss, but I look forward to seeing your research, both on issues in the Indian Ocean and on August nuclear-powered submarine capability from the NSC this year. Thanks, Jen. Thank you.